All right, open your Bibles to the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the very last book of our Bible. Last week, I told you that in a lot of ways, this is, this is miserable to study. Um, it's still miserable to study. My opinion hasn't changed. However, just that perspective, this description that we're sitting in is sitting in this period immediately prior to Jesus returning and coming back. So as we, as we study this future information, there's a lot of things about it that are extremely uncomfortable. Again, just in, in sitting in, in desiring to communicate the, the pain of this, it's a, the Bible gives us that illustration of a woman in childbirth. That as you sit in pregnancy, things become more and more uncomfortable as you draw close to the delivery of the child. As you're sitting in labor contractions, those contractions get more and more harsh until that moment right before the child is delivered. So when we are looking at the descriptions that we have in Revelation, we are looking at that level 10 pain in regards to evil in regards to suffering, in regards to tribulation. God's purpose in all of this is to bring about repentance through human beings. So we are told that God gives us information about the future prophecy so that when things happen that he says are going to happen, that we will know and believe that he is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. So when we're sitting in this information, there is a future judgment and pain and suffering and fear and agony that is at its peak level, at level 10 across the board, prior to Jesus coming back as king. And when Jesus returns in Revelation 19, we watch a, an, a massive judgment and the establishment of him as king on this earth so that when Jesus comes, all of, the, all of that pain that was there, just like in childbirth, all of that pain that was there, now that the child is delivered, the pain is forgotten for the joy of this new life that God has created and provided and all the blessings and joy that is part of that life. Same thing when Jesus comes. We are told that it's going to be a new kingdom. Eventually there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. The former things are going to be gone. They're going to pass away. So there is this, as we sit in the misery of this description, the hope is the reality that he is ultimately bringing. I've mentioned a lot that uh, we keep going back to Daniel um, when you sit in Daniel's prophecy. So Daniel is a prophet. He is a teenager in Jerusalem, in Israel, at the time that Babylon is reigning over this area of the world. When Babylon comes down and conquers Jerusalem as a divine judgment from God, against the idolatry and the rebellion of the nation of Israel, Daniel is taken away captive to Babylon as a teenager. He's made a eunuch. And we watch the early scenes of his life as he commits himself to be faithful in his relationship to the Lord, that over time we watch Daniel progress from this slave to essentially the prime minister of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and then under King Darius when the, when the shift from, uh, goes from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire when they come in and conquer Babylon. 
So when you sit with Daniel in the visions and the information that God gave to Daniel, you have to sit in his mind, in his context, five, roughly five to 600 years before Jesus steps onto the scene. A lot of the information that Daniel has was given is information that God is giving to John after Christ has been and his resurrection and his ascension and he's ascended to heaven, John is now being given similar information and similar visions to what Daniel saw. When you sit with Daniel, Daniel's testimony in a couple of the visions that he is given, he is, he's astonished. There's descriptions of these kingdoms and the specific individual that we know as the Antichrist that when Daniel sees and hears this information in this first-person narrative, one of, I think it's at the end of chapter 8, it says that he was sick for four days. So the information that we're studying right now, again, like I said, it's not easy. It's horrific. And it ought to kind of make us sick on the inside. How many, how many of you want to free people from their suffering? Whether it's they're suffering physically, they're suffering emotionally, they may be suffering from poor government, it may be a physical, whatever an individual's suffering is, often we want to step in with something to save them, to bring them out of that suffering. So when we read these circumstances, I'm, I'm reading this description of level 10 horrific suffering, level 10 Satan's authority in humankind and in the nations. And all I want, my, my desire is that people would not have to be subjected to this and that they'd be free from it. And again, this, the simple truth is, is we communicate Jesus as who he is, as God, as our lamb, as our sacrifice, as the propitiation, that substitutionary sacrifice for my sins and my death, like he satisfied the Father's requirements. That that simple faith and trust in him, I'm delivered from death. I may not be delivered from suffering in life, because that happens, but there's this promise of joy that's coming. So we're sitting in all of these ideas together. But I've been, as I study this, every time I study Revelation from chapter 6 through chapter 19 until Jesus comes, it's, it's, it makes me sick. It's just, it's not fun to me. It's not fun to study. It's not fun to communicate. Link and I were talking this morning. There's so much information in here that's really confusing. When I read commentaries about Revelation, the word may is probably the most popular word in the commentaries. It may be this. It may be that. This is what we think. We lack a lot of clarity. We try and piece together all the different information that God has given us together about this future and again, for the purpose so that God will be known, so that humanity knows that there is an end coming, that there is a judgment of sin, that there is a devil, that there is deception. But again, that there, there is something beyond this horror. There is our king is going to come. So now with that as background, we're going to sit in our second week of anti-Jesus, where we are watching Satan in his full authority that has been granted to him by God as his creator, that full authority, exerting that full authority upon humanity. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, 
there's this pronouncement that Satan has been cast out of heaven, and there's this declaration that says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. And this, this moment of Satan being cast out of heaven, we understand to be this last three and a half year period of time before Jesus comes. And again, we sit in our, our election cycles or every four years when we think about major elected officials, the president and those kinds of things. So you sit in a four-year period of time. Like if you don't like the individual who is in office, you know that there's a, there's a change of leadership that's coming, right? So even as we sit in the information today, the, the guy that is in office is the epitome of anti-Jesus, Okay. And again, that, that hope and that reality, there is a change of authority. There is a change of government coming, and Jesus' government is eternal. His kingdom is forever and ever. But the woes that are pronounced on the earth and the sea, last week we began giving some of the definition to this beast that rises out of the sea. We'll go through some of that again today, and then in chapter, in verse 11, of chapter 13, we have this beast that comes out of the earth. Now remember, as we sit in this, as this beast is being described, it's this description of a wild animal, right? This is not a physical description of this is this beast figure that's going to come in the future. The, the description is all about character, and it's a character, it's giving description of the character of Satan as the anti-father, it is giving character of this, of this individual who is going to be the leader of the government of the world at that point, who is known as the Antichrist, the Anti-Jesus. And today we look at this third beast also, who is known as the false prophet, this beast that rises up out of the earth that is the Anti-Spirit. So we're sitting in this unholy trinity, this opposition to God, and all of the descriptions that are being given stands in direct opposition to God's character as he has revealed himself, and we'll see that as we travel. So all of chapter 13 we're going to read. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name, a profane name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, identified as Satan earlier, the dragon, Satan, will give him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. Literally, uh, the word mortal there is death, and the word for wounded is slaughtered. So this is dead, dead, okay? And his deadly wound, this deadly blow, was healed, was cured. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. What are we supposed to do as disciples of Christ? You follow Jesus, right? So again, the, 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 every single one of these descriptions, it's standing in opposition in, in picture and in contrast. All the world followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon Humanity shall worship Satan, who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Again, there's these questions in the Old Testament. Who is like Yahweh? 
Who is like the Lord who has created the heavens and the earth? And the answer is, there's none like the Lord. Taking on these divine questions and these divine attributes. See, who is like the beasts? He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. So this is that three and a half year period of time, 1260 days. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Again, that contrast, not dwelling on earth. Even though we may live here, our home, our citizenship is with our Jesus in heaven who is seated at the right hand of the Father. We are told already he has seated us in the heavenly places with himself future promise that shall be fulfilled. It was granted to him to make war with the saints. Look at this. And to overcome them. Remember that level 10 of suffering. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, whole world. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has near, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience, the steadfast endurance, and the faith of the saints. This whole idea, that sentence is, God will bring about his justice and his vengeance in his time. Those who are placing you into captivity now, they are going to be in captivity for eternity. Those who are beheading you at this time in history with the sword, they will be killed with the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. Oh, a cute little lamb, but he's speaking like a dragon. And he exercises, he makes. So this is a, um, that we are his workmanship. God has created us. We are his, the product of his work. This is a, we focused on this word a lot as we're going through the book of Acts. This is the exact same work. Here's the workmanship. Here's the product of this beast that is being described that later on in Revelation is identified as the false prophet, or we can say the profane prophet. He makes, this is the product, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he causes, he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs, literally, he makes, this is all the same Greek word, he makes great signs, literally miracles. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those. Remember this word for deception. It means to lead astray, to cause somebody to wander away. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, by those miracles, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image, an icon of the beast, 
who was wounded with the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath, literally to give spirit to the image of the beast. And the image of the beast should both speak and cause and make as many as who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes, he makes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and set slave, to receive a mark, a stamp on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding, literally let him who has the mind, calculate, count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Sounds fun, huh? You just sit in, I mean, this is just, this is gross. So remember, we are looking at this unholy trinity. Satan from, he is a created being. We have descriptions in um, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. You have that description of him in Genesis 3. Job chapters 1 and 2, this, this adversary, this one who, as a created being, was filled with pride, and in that pride found it profitable in his foolishness to stand in opposition to his creator. And we can all sit in that foolishness and, as we're deceived by sin. The level of rebellion of this creature and those of that class of creation, these angels that join in with him in this rebellion, um, it's both fascinating and horrific and head-scratching all at the same time. But this, create, this creature that stands in opposition to God and the war that's going on has been cast to earth and he has prepared in the future in his mind this final rebellion against God in opposition to God, which means he is going to seek to kill, to destroy, to cause the wander, to lead God's other creatures, man, male and female, that were created to possess the image of God, who we have lost that image because of our rebellion, but the image has been granted back to us because of Jesus' sacrifice that anybody who has already turned to Christ, he is going to seek to kill and destroy and seek to cause you to blaspheme, to profane the name of God, to question God. When he is challenging God about Job, Satan's goal for Job is for Job to curse God to his face. You don't love me. You killed my kids. You've given me these boils. You've given me these friends that know nothing. Satan's temptation, Satan's accusation to God is the only reason your creatures worship you is because you give them good things. Take away those good things and your creation will curse you to your face. Same thing, he's an accuser. He's a slanderer. He's doing these same types of conversation with God concerning you and me today. 
And those who are standing outside of a relationship with Jesus, he is doing anything that he can in his authority to keep them away. And again, we see that at level what today? I don't know, but in this passage, we see at level 10. So this, this individual, this beast that is described that's coming out of the sea that we talked about last week, we got through some of the descriptions. You sit with Daniel, this is very clearly described as not only an individual, but as with national characteristics. We talked about these seven heads are later identified as seven kings, which this progression of the major world empires over the area that is concerning the nation of Israel throughout history, which is uh, Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome at the time of John. Rome fails and dies and goes away, but this, there's seen this deadly wound is seen as a national deadly wound that the Roman Empire in its, in its empire form has gone away and that there is coming a future revival of... Um, imperial government at this time. At the same time, this description that is given of this beast is also related to an individual who is the anti-Jesus, which again, Daniel gives us a lot of the descriptions concerning this pompous one, this arrogant one, this one who is going to declare himself to be God. Jesus talks about the same individual in Matthew 24. You see the same individual being discussed by Paul to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians. There's lots of information that you can go press in and study his character, but ultimately on the, on the head of this beast, regardless of the form of government as it's progressed through time, this government that is going to come about in the end is a profane government, a blasphemous government, something that was dead, was dead dead, and it's going to come back alive. I have a hard time understanding how that would lead people to worship Satan and the authority behind that. Um, so one of the major ideas that this is what we think it may be that this antichrist figure is going to suffer a death. He's going to be dead, dead. And Satan's authority and Satan's power is going to raise that individual from the death. Does that make you uncomfortable? Does Satan have that kind of power? I don't, I don't think so. But if we press into this being an individual, the resurrection of this individual, the resuscitation of this individual from the, the dead, dead, death and slaughter together, it's not just, oh, we think that this guy is dead. He's dead. It's a, it's a the imagery that is being given to us in the future reality description is that there is presented to the world an anti-Jesus. Jesus was dead, dead. He was slaughtered and sacrificed for our sins on a cross by the Romans, willfully. Through his own power, through the Father's power, through the Spirit's power, he took his life back to himself and rose again from the dead. This is the testimony that we sit in regards to who Jesus is. And not only do we have that testimony of reality, we have the testimony that his followers watched him ascend to heaven. They went out through the Roman Empire at this time proclaiming this message, and every single one of them died believing that message. And again, we sit in belief and faith in that message. In the future, 
The world is going to witness the death of an individual who is empowered by Satan, and Satan is going to be granted the power and authority by God to give that man his life back for three and a half years. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me super uncomfortable. It has theological implications that a lot of commentators, a lot of theologians will dance around the description of what's being given, what's right before us, because that idea, it's really weird and it's really uncomfortable. And even saying it out loud, just kind of, Blake, are you nuts? Well, yeah. Because <laughs> again, we think, and it may be this, and it may be that. But there is something about this event that astonishes humanity. How many of you have ever seen a miracle? How many of you ever have you've witnessed something that, whether it's a healing, whether it's a vision, you have experienced something in your life where you have seen that was not natural? I have. When you see something that is not natural, who do you automatically want to attribute it to? God. The Bible says not so. So when it comes to, remember in Exodus, and Moses is sent to Pharaoh, let my people go, and God starts to pr uh, produce these miracles, these plagues, these judgments through Moses, divine acts of God, right? What were Pharaoh's musicians, magicians able to do? They had the power to be able to perform those same kind of miracles. So when you sit in the power set, like, these, these creatures have a very real power. In Matthew chapter 7, towards the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says that there are many people who are going to come to Jesus stand before him in judgment. They call him Lord. We did all of these signs, all of these miracles in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, which is, wait a minute. These people did, they performed signs and miracles in the name of Jesus, but they weren't Jesus's. So it wasn't God's action that enabled them to perform that. Their power was sourced from Satan. How all of that works out, I don't have a clue. But when we see something going on in life that defies a natural explanation, if we attempt to define that event outside of what is true, we can abide in deception. You can sit in, and I'm going to pick on Catholics just a little bit, not heavily, um, but you sit with the Roman Catholic Church throughout history. There are many miracles that have been performed, things that are beyond natural explanation that they would want to seize upon and say, see, we have the authority of God in this area. And again, I'm not throwing a stone at all Catholics, okay? Um, as we progress through Revelation, as we progress into the imagery that is being given about false religion and false prophets, there are many who stand in the position and claim to represent Jesus Christ that represents Satan's kingdom and not Jesus' kingdom. When you sit in a lot of the imagery, a lot of the pageantry, a lot of the history of practices within the Roman Catholic Church, many of those things are sourced outside of the Word of God, and they're sourced in paganism, and we're going to get into that a little bit today. 
However, so we're talking about signs. When signs, these miracles happen, many are going to say, see, this sign was performed in the name of God. We have the authority of God. Therefore, you must submit to us as God's representatives. And that's what is going to happen in the future. There is going to be this miraculous resurrection and those who dwell on the earth, which means those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ, they are going to be blinded and deceived by this miracle, which is going to be a legitimate miracle, and they are going to turn and worship the one who stands in ultimate rebellion against the creator of the heavens and the earth. Are you uncomfortable? It makes, it makes me extremely uncomfortable talked about, again, the, the beast out of the sea last week, but again, this, this mouth that speaks blasphemy, profane opposition to God, authority is given to him for a three and a half year period of time. Jesus tells us that that period of time was limited because if it extended, that nobody would survive. That's level 10. He blasphemes against God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Blasphemes against his name. God's name is his character. Blasphemes against his tabernacle. Again, this is the place where God promised to dwell with and meet with his people. And he is blaspheming against those who dwell in heaven. Not only those who have died and are with Christ, but this description of those who dwell in heaven. Even if you're alive now, you are dwellers of heaven. You are citizens of his kingdom. Granted to make war with the saints to the point where... Even believers, they will be overcome physically, but not spiritually. Authority is given over every tribe tongue. Again, this is, this is uh, seen as this promised one world government underneath the authority of one imperial form of government and one individual that is heading that up. All who dwell on the earth, again, all put in quotes, because clearly there are going to be many who turn to faith, but that dwell on the earth, those, that identification, that title, is for people who reject God as creator. Those who dwell on this earth are going to worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb from the beginning of the, uh, slain from the foundation of the earth. So in this sentence here, there's two different ideas. Uh, from the foundation of the earth, does it modify the lamb who was slain or does it modify the names who were written? Uh, there's scholarly debate on the modification of which, and I say yes to both because, again, this is God's plan A. Your name has been pinned down in God's record of life. Isn't that, isn't that precious? I mean, just, I mean, just the imagery that's being given. Have you ever written down your spouse's name? You've written down your child's name. We just had Mother's Day and Father's Day, you know. You write dad, you write mom. Just that, that relationship to that writing. And again, the, the, there's, there's different descriptions that we have of this book in the Bible. Uh, there's a, there's a, an idea that the name could be blotted out and erased. Jesus, keep us in a relationship with you, dependence upon you. You have personally written down my name, my life. You have given me your character and your nature for all eternity. And again, your slaughter, your death for my sins, for our sins, 
This was written. This was known before the foundation of the world, before he ever even chose to create. We pressed into that, that last uh, verse there in verse 10 at the end of last week, so I'm not going to cover it again today. So now the, the beast out of the earth. There's this other beast out of the earth, false prophet. He has two horns like a lamb. And again, here this, 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 what I forgot to mention, one last point in regards to the, uh, the deadly wound. In chapter 5 of Revelation, when John sees a lamb as though he had been slain, that description of Jesus, the, again, the Antichrist, Satan, is seizing upon that same imagery in regards to this deadly wound, this death slaughter. It's the exact same word. John saw Jesus as though he had been slaughtered, sacrificed for the sins of humanity. And there's this future, again, standing in opposition and contrast and imitation that is failing. Um, so that's another one of those images. All right, now the false prophet. He's got two horns. He's looking like a lamb. Nobody knows what the, if there's any significance to these specific two horns and this description as a lamb, this gentle... Um, Again, there's, there's, a, there's a priestly significance that's associated with that imagery, but out of his mouth, words of a dragon. He has the same authority, again, that has been granted by God to Satan to be able to empower the Antichrist and to be able to empower this false prophet, this unholy trinity. Same power, same authority over men, women, he is causing those who dwell on the earth to worship the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. It's going to be a, a sign in that time. He's going to be able to perform these very specific miracles. Remember Elijah calling fire down from heaven to kill the, the two groups of 50 men that were coming to arrest him? Um, as he is in that trial, and is it 1 Kings 18 where... Um, you have the prophets of Baal and Elijah, and Elijah's claim is, let the true God, let fire fall down from heaven if Yahweh is the creator of heaven and the earth. And that's, that is what happens. So again, there's this, there's this deceiving supernatural miracle power that is going to very much so deceive people into thinking that this individual is a representative of God. This individual is God in the flesh. He has been resurrected from the dead. This individual who is the false prophet is marrying that national leader, that imperial leader, and this religious leader together. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. He deceives all those who dwell on the earth, Actually, let's just talk about that right now before we get into this, this image of the beast, and that's as far as we're going to get this morning. Um, I wrote in my Bible just a brief sentence from one of the commentaries that I just I read this week, and looking at the, the hearts and those who have the hearts and emulate uh, being a false prophet is abusing religious devotion to make thoughtless allegiance to the state. So when you sit in 
the, the, all the nations that I mentioned earlier, from Egypt to Rome and to this future government. Every single one of those nations, there was a marriage between its leader and its religion. So even today, so in the United States of America, we have what's known as the separation of church and state, which means what? Which means that our elected officials have no authority over the church. Because in the foundations of this country, as people were, f those groups that were fleeing religious persecution, they were fleeing state Christian religion. So King George was the head of the Church of England and was persecuting other believers in Christ because their religion was not obedient, not only to Jesus, but their religion, their exercise of their following Jesus was not subject to the king. When you sit in church history, when you watch the expansion of the gospel, especially into Europe, the way of the king was the way of the people. So often, through war, or even through a foreign king submitting themselves, whether it was to Rome or um, submitting themselves to Rome, essentially, until the Protestant Reformation. If a king bent the knee to Jesus, all of the king's subjects by proxy bent the knee to Jesus. So this is where you watch all these cultures being brought under the umbrella of state Christianity and all of their paganism coming in with, because as a leader, you need to appease everybody, right? So I'm the king, I'm now bowing to Jesus, and I'm looking to Rome as, the, as God's representative on this planet as, as that priestly mantle. If I, the king, am bending that knee, now all of my subjects must bend the knee also. But to keep my subjects happy, you need to marry a lot of their, and redefine a lot of their religious practices. So this is why, like in our nation, when we exercise our rights as citizens and our civic duty to vote, we're, we're looking for, I'm looking for men and women who bow, the bow their knees personally to Jesus to who he is as king, to who he is as God, to his morals, to his, his ethics. This, I am looking for those types of individuals to lead us civically. However, I have a line that those civic authorities, they are not my religious authorities. The governor of Georgia is not my religious authority. The president of the United States is not my religious authority. The Supreme Court of the United States is not my religious authority. Jesus is my religious authority. And we have the freedom to exercise that. So in our country, the separation of church and state is we have the freedom to choose yes Jesus or no Jesus. And that, come, that freedom comes with its consequences, good and bad. But you go sit in national, state, religious um, governments throughout history when the government controls the religion, the citizens of that nation, their religion is forced. That's exactly what is going to happen in the future. When you sit in imperial Rome in John's time, at the time that he has this vision, Caesar is not only king, Caesar is also God in the flesh. 
you not only look to Caesar as your national leader, you look to Caesar as your religious leader. And how dare you, Christian, not say so? So in, the, in, in John's time, as people are responding to Jesus as Savior and as King, they are considered to be unpatriotic in regards to Rome. And it's the same thing here. People in our country, people will use our citizenship as Americans, they will use that to manipulate and motivate us to do what they want us to do, good, bad, or whether they're motivated legitimately in, uh, by Christ or they're motivated by, by something else. People will use the name of Jesus in our government structure, in our government sphere, to attempt for you to relinquish your submission to Jesus to your submission to the government authority. And if you don't submit yourself to the government authority, you are unchristian, well, unchristian in a way, but you are unpatriotic, you are un-American. And again, we, we, sit in, we sit in this kind of narrative today. If you don't believe this particular candidate and this particular candidate's view, I'm questioning whether or not you're even saved. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I'm not looking for this candidate to be my religious leader. I look to Jesus to be my religious leader. I'm praying to God that that candidate submits themselves willingly to Jesus. And if they don't, I pray that God is breaking through. I praise God that we live in a nation where there is a separation of power. Because if we have to put up with a Yahoo for two years, for four years, or six years in our representative formation of government, we have an election cycle that we can remove that individual. The danger with it is, is that the majority rules. So if the majority bends the knee to creator, there can be very good things in our form of government. If the majority is in rebellion to our creator, we can have very upsetting things and lots of suffering in our culture. I'm talking about this long-windedly, because we are told that there is this future imperial form of government, and we have watched this same behavior occur throughout history, so that as we apply this passage in our life today, to make sure that your nationalism never trumps your relationship with Jesus Christ. When you consider your civic duty, when you consider your culture, when you consider your government, whether it's local, federal, state, whatever office that may be, always seek first to submit your mind and your heart to the government of Jesus. He is your authority. As our authority, there are times when he calls us to be compliant to the government authority that he has placed over us. Romans is very clear that governments, regardless of it's the United States of America, communist China, dictatorship North Korea, that those authorities have been granted by God, that they are ministers of God whether they know it or not, because a lot, most of the times those governments keep evil in check to some degree, and then at the same time, sometimes those governments become the source of some of the greatest atrocities in history. 
Jesus is our authority. When he calls us to be compliant, we bend the knee to the authorities that he has placed in our life so that we can shine the light of Christ brightly. At the same time, there are periods in history when he calls us to be rebels, where you, as the government, are commanding me to do something that stands in opposition to my king's commands. Therefore, I am going to be civilly disobedient as light, not in hate. In love, representing Christ, being civilly disobedient as necessary. There are times throughout human history where Jesus has called his children to arms to take up the sword, I have no doubt. There are times in human history where Jesus has told his children to lay down the sword, I have no doubt. That as we progress through our relationship and our life experience and our time, that we are submitting our mind, our heart, our ideas, our patriotism solely to Jesus, not to a candidate, not to a party, not to a platform, because every single one of those others, they're mixed. They have mixed motivations. They have mixed seed in the sense that some of their, some of their, um, some of the source of what they are attempting to do could be defined as uh, biblically accurate, and other times what they are attempting to do, how they are behaving, would be defined as an absolute opposition to the Bible. So when we sit in these life experiences in our culture, in our times, that we make sure that our citizenship, you dwell in heaven right now. You are seated with Christ on the throne of the Father, and there's coming a future fulfillment of that. Um, the caution, the caution is always, um, and again, there's, there's a, however you are processing through your political culture of the day, submit your minds and your hearts and your actions to Jesus as your king before you engage civilly before you engage verbally, and I need, I need to do the exact same thing. And if I need to stand in rebuke and in opposition and with a bullhorn, if that's what Jesus is calling me to do in opposition to my culture, then I'll do exactly what he tells me to do. If he's telling me to be quiet and to be humble, then that's what I'll do. And again, the circumstance in our wisdom could be both, right? It could be, and you could see both sides of the story, but this is where we are confident that the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, he will lead us in his truth and in that engagement culturally. And then the warning just stands out of the, the government system of the Antichrist is to abuse religion in a way that causes people not to think and causes them to automatically submit to their political ruler and we have watched this throughout. Hitler used the church to kill the Jews. The church helped Nazi party Jewish killers, Christian killers to escape trial post-World War II. That's wrong. The church being used in a way to 
enforce and implement satanically motivated power. I told you this is uncomfortable. We'll get into the image of the beast next week. I got a little icon on my hand and help describe that. And we'll only sit for about 15 minutes in the yuck, and then we'll get into chapter 14, which has some more good news and more pleasant information to sit in. So, Heavenly Father, we each want to give you thanks that you have saved us from horror. I sit in this description of what it is that Satan chooses to do with his authority, and with the authority that you have given to him, he chooses to hate you, and he chooses to hate human beings. You have given me the freedom of choice. And Lord, I submit to you afresh because your mercies are new every day. I submit to you my mind and my heart because I want it to be clean. I want it to be free from deception, from wandering, from opposing voices. As, as I have meditations in my heart, Lord, I want those things to be pleasing to you because out of my heart proceeds things. Jesus, you tell us that out of our heart proceeds all kinds of murders, violence, blasphemies, hatred, anger. And because you have granted to us a new heart, you've given us a new heart. This is your work. Now out of our mouth proceeds praise and blessing and gratitude and life. I pray for the nations of the world today, Lord. We know that they rage against you, but they're filled with human beings that need to know you, Jesus. So we're asking that you would enable your church through the power of your spirit to go out into all the world, whether that's across the street or that's across an ocean. to proclaim your light and your power and your love and your freedom. And at the same time, Lord, that you let humanity know the contrast. What we're left with outside of you is horrific. But what we're given in you is glorious. So we turn back to you just in worship, Lord. Guide our minds and our mouths right now as we worship you, as we meditate on your sacrifice, on your body and your blood, as we fellowship with you and with one another. Lord, lead us. Let us see your majesty. Let us see your power. Let us see your truth. Let us see ourselves in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.